Support for this podcast and the following message come from Georgetown School of Continuing Studies, where you can earn a master's degree or professional certificate downtown or online. All options, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu. What do Bohemian Rhapsody, Vice, and Green Book have in common? Two things. One, they're nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. And two, they're based on events in the lives of real people. Today, awards season leads us to a wide-reaching conversation on some very different movies. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes, and today we're talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, Vice, and Green Book. Joining us in the studio is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Linda. These are the three films, by the way, that are nominated for Best Picture that we haven't already done full shows on. Right. So we're wrapping them all up in this one <laughs> lovely package. And we're going to talk first about Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the biographical film about Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. It follows them from, it follows him from about 1970 to Live Aid in 1985. It has been recently in the news partly because of a published article revealing that uh, Brian Singer, who's the credited director who did about two-thirds of the film, uh, according to the reports we have before, he was fired. Um, Singer has been accused of a range of sexual misconduct, including sexual assault against minors. He denies those allegations. It's kind of brought the the film back into the news, along with the fact that it won the Golden Globe for uh, drama. Right. Um, Glenn, you reviewed Bohemian Rhapsody for NPR back when it was first released. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about kind of where you come down on this film. What I thought of this movie, uh, Guy Branham said in a tweet, <laughs> much pithier, he said... I just saw Bohemian Rhapsody and learned you can track AIDS from lingering eye contact with unnamed male extras. <laughs> this film elides his queerness in a really dispiriting way. We're talking about Freddie Mercury, of course. The structure of it is so uh, familiar of the VH1 behind the music. For real. Rise and Fall from Grace. But let me play devil's advocate here. It is hugely popular. When I saw it uh, at a press screening with members of the, the the citizenry, you know, non, non-critics, non they ate it up. They laughed at every joke that I scowled at, and they loved the music. Everybody you talk to about this film says, oh, the music's great. If you have just hired a, a babysitter, and you want to go out, and you <laughs> like the music of Queen, and you just want to see a film that meets every single one of your expectations, all your preconceived notions about a thing are reassured. Mm-hmm. All the hard edges of anything get filed down. And the music is great. And maybe even if you are not homophobic, maybe if you have a lot of gay friends, you still don't want to see gay sex on screen. Uh, so don't shove that in my face. This film delivers on a promise that I think is kind of cynical and small, but it gives you exactly what you imagine you're going to get out of a Queen biography. Hmm. Okay. Stephen, tell me what you think about Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I had a lot of the same reaction that Glenn did. I had the experience over the holidays where this was the movie where every one of my relatives said... What did you think of Bohemian Rhapsody? I loved it so much. And then I would usually say, well, and then Katie would blurt out that she hated it. And then the discussion would always boil down to, but I really love the music. And I think that this movie taps into a giant public collective love of the music of Queen that is very powerful. Now, I also don't think that this movie does a particularly effective job of staging it until the last scene. I think that during the course of the movie, a lot of the performances feel very flat and very soundstage-y. I did not connect with this movie at all, and I also 
kept bumping up against how disingenuous it felt at times. This movie scrambles the chronology of fairly recent history in some pretty ugly ways. Uh Freddie Mercury was not diagnosed with HIV until after Live Aid. This movie positions that very differently. This movie doesn't acknowledge in any way, shape, or form some of the controversies involving Queen, for example, playing in South Africa when there was a boycott. This movie feels like plot points were vetoed in a boardroom headed by Brian May of Queen. Yeah, right. well, and and you never know to what degree that could have happened because Brian May and Roger Taylor, also of Queen, are producers on this film. And that's one of the things that always makes me um, suspicious of biopics. The, the, uh, this yeah. movie shovels a lot of guilt onto only a couple of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one bad boyfriend seems to be the result of everything bad Queen ever did. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this ridiculous scene in this movie where Queen is playing Live Aid and Bob Geldof, organizer of Live Aid, is like nervously pacing around phones that aren't ringing until Queen shows up and performs. Like, finally Queen showed up and saved Africa. It's (sighs) ridiculous. It's a very, very frustrating movie. I think the Rami Malek performance at the center is very magnetic and very impressive. The music of Queen is great. This movie, to me, is a total non-entity. I really love Rami Malek. I love Rami Malek and Mr. Robot. I also even really liked Rami Malek in the remake of Papillon that Mm -hmm. came out uh, in the last year or two. I didn't even particularly care for his performance in this, to be honest. And and I think it's because, you know, you mentioned a public affection for the music of Queen. Queen occupies a very peculiar place in my musical taste, which is that I think of Queen as a band I like. And then every time I actually listen to some Queen, I think, God, I love Queen. <laughs> this music is so good. And I think similarly, when you watch this final sequence, which uh, Stephen mentioned, which is the Live Aid sequence, their performance at Wembley Stadium during Live Aid in 1985, which is truly one of the best live performances by any band ever. I I genuinely think that. You see it through the film's eyes. And then if you go back and watch, it's so much better. And it's because Freddie Mercury's particular sexy, weird, glam, fun, mischievous energy is really hard to capture. And I have to tell you, I don't think they got it. And one of the things I said to Glenn is, you know, everybody who's seen this has talked about the the giant prosthetic teeth. And I truly think the teeth in the film have made it hard for Rami Malek to portray a natural smile. And I think if you watch Freddie Mercury at actual Live Aid, there is a smile and a fun to it that I don't think comes across in what becomes, like you mentioned, this portent of he has found out he's HIV positive and they kind of weigh it down with that. As opposed to the more, I think, lighthearted performance it actually is if you watch it. Yeah, but, to use a word that we don't bandy around much, uh, joy, yeah, <laughs> for example. Yeah. Here's some joy. I think it's, I, I think in that sense, I think even the parts of it that other people liked, I didn't I didn't care for as much. So Bohemian Rhapsody, I know, as Glenn mentioned, and as they both mentioned, I know how much a lot of people loved it, and I'm not dumping on them for loving it. Listen to a lot of Queen and watch that Live Aid performance, which you can still find pretty easily because it is stellar. Okay, so the next film that we're going to talk about is Vice. And Vice is the work of Adam McKay, who came out of working on SNL and in comedies with Will Ferrell and stuff like that, but then also did The Big Short a couple years ago. Vice is the story of Dick Cheney, 
who, as you may know, was the vice president of the United States for time. <laughs> oh, that's uh, an NPR comma, if I ever <laughs> uh, Batman is the... <laughs> sorry. So Dick Cheney, it follows Dick Cheney from his youth through becoming vice president. And it has a kind of a thesis, I think, that Dick Cheney is responsible for essentially everything that's happened in the United States since about 1980. Yeah. I don't think it makes that uh, point very... Um, persuasively to me. And I do think that it suffers from Adam McKay having become too fond of some of the the techniques that he used in the big short that were widely praised, the kind of fourth wall breaking, the use of narration to sort of say, well, now we're going to explain this concept to you. And it's sort of like in the big short, it was financial stuff. In this film, it's the unitary executive. I think it gets bogged down in that. But to me, I don't necessarily think this movie is bad. I just think it's kind of nothing. I think it's a bunch of impersonations, like, do I think Christian Bale kind of disappears into Dick Cheney? Yeah, I think it's fair to say. But I don't care, really. I don't think they make a good case for why this story is important. I don't think it's very well structured, and I do think it's entirely too fussy. There's a big gag reveal thing about the narrator that I think is ultimately very anticlimactic. To me, I was like, oh, I was expecting a much more interesting end to that tease that they were continually giving about the narration. What do you think, uh, Glenn? Is it possible for a film to be smug? (laughs) Is it possible for a film to come off just so self-satisfied, fratty, uh, for lack of a better word? This film, man, like it's like going to the monkey house at the zoo, you know, when you walk in and they're they're kind of showing off for you and you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, look at you, Mr. Monkey. Mm -hmm. And then they start playing with themselves. And then you're thinking to yourself, (laughs) okay, now, Mr. Monkey, you and I are standing at either ends of a very steep pleasure gradient, <laughs> and you are having a great time, but me watching you, I'm not having a great time. I want to get the hell out of the monkey house. After a while, it just builds and builds and builds. The point of view of this film is snide. There's, it's animated by a sneer, and even if you agree that the object of this film deserves a sneer, deserves like if the film's motivating principle was outrage... I think it would feel more urgent and right. it, would, it would feel like there's a reason that we're watching this. But there's a glibness over and over again here. You do get some sense of outrage every so often, like especially around the narrator character. You, some some real stuff happens. But mostly it was just played too fast and loose, too lightly. They were having such a great time at the expense of my good time. Yeah, this is more a character sketch than a story. Mm-hmm. and. Even there, it doesn't really get at any real animating principle. I've read that Adam McKay viewed this movie as like the origin story for a supervillain, I guess. But it doesn't really cohere as that. Uh, There's a scene in this movie where Dick Cheney is is talking to someone and and it's like, what do we believe in? And then they all burst out laughing like these people are are not motivated by any actual political philosophy. And that's just false. That's not actually true of Dick Cheney. That's not actually true of Dick Cheney, who believes very, very strongly in kind of an American exceptionalism and just and like displays of power, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Unitary executive, as you mentioned. So this film just feels like a series of like SNL impersonations. And I think Christian Bale, as you said, Linda, Christian Bale does get lost in the in the persona of Dick Cheney in a way that is impressive in the way that Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill is like impressive and also 68 percent acting by prosthetics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think that Sam Rockwell is is an isn't a, to me a fairly interesting portrayal of George W. Bush. I I, I think that's a nice performance. Uh, Quite similar, though, I would say to Josh Brolin in mm-hmm. W, w. Mm-hmm. which is Oliver Stone's that kind of young fratty. Um, ne'er-do-well who was still expected to be the golden boy. Very similar take. Yeah, but I, I think that Sam Rockwell was kind of a neat bit of casting for that. I thought that worked. Amy Adams, who was nominated for an Oscar at playing Lynn Cheney, I never lose sight of the fact that I'm watching Amy Adams. And the one that I could not shake this entire movie was Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld, which that is where you really feel like, okay, here's Alec Baldwin doing Donald Trump again. You never forget that you're watching Steve Carell at any moment. And they kind of trot out a series of celebrity impersonations in lieu of a story. This movie did not cohere into anything that really worked for me at all. And I kind of just came out of the movie the way I came into it a little bit, which was why. Yeah, I I think that's a fair take. So now we are going to talk. (laughs) No. And now Green Book. So the thing about Green Book is I think that it, it seems well positioned to win Best Picture, which I find baffling. But it won the Audience Award in Toronto mm-hmm. in a year of widows and we should have seen it coming then. Bunch of really good films that we saw in Toronto. This won the Audience Award. If you're not familiar with Green Book, it is based uh, on real events, uh, adapted from them somewhat uh, uh, generously, I mm-hmm. think. It is about a guy named uh, who goes by the name Tony Lip. He was a, a driver and a bouncer and protector for Donald Shirley, who was a classical and jazz pianist, very, very accomplished in the 1960s, and who went on kind of a tour of the Deep South by car, and his driver was Tony Lip. The movie is co-written by Tony Vallelonga, Tony Lip's son, and directed by Peter Farrelly, who you may know from such sensitive racial um, dramas as There's Something About Mary. So, Stephen, <laughs> when you saw Green Book, yes. you sort of said, it's fine. My reaction to this film, we, we sometimes have conversations on this show about whether you need to see a movie in the theater. Do we need to see Roma in the theater? Do we need to see First Man in the theater? And to me, the exact appropriate screen size for the movie Green Book is the tiny rectangle on the back of a seat on an airplane. Hmm. When I watched it, I just had this experience of like, I'm just breezing through this very minor kind of airplane movie that, yes, would have been nominated for Best Picture in 1983 or 19. 19- 88 or 1993 you could have put it out at any point in the last 40 years it would be exactly the same movie Mahershala Ali as Donald Shirley is very good in this movie Viggo Mortensen is doing a very broad but it but it felt it felt minor and simple and pat and kind of this is a comforting movie if your view of race has not evolved at all in the last 40 years mm-hmm. the more and you're a white person and you're a I white and say, you're yeah. a white person yeah. 
The more you read interviews with Donald Shirley's family, the clearer it is that they didn't talk to any of them or find out any actual information about Donald Shirley or how he lived his life. The movie has as a great big plot point that Donald Shirley is estranged from his family and hasn't talked to his family in ages, and his family says that is completely untrue. He was close with his family, talked to his family all the time. The movie does not care. There's a telling moment in the Golden Globes where Nick Vallelonga accepts a Golden Globe and says, boy, every time I see Linda Cardellini, uh, who plays his mother, every time I see Linda Cardellini in this movie, I just think that's my mother there on the screen. And I think that's, for him, the point of the movie, mm-hmm. is this is a movie about my family. Mm-hmm. And it, it does not give a crap yeah. about Donald Shirley. It yeah. does not give a crap about his experiences at all. It cares about this guy who became this guy's driver for a little while. The movie establishes at one point that they call him Tony Lip because he BSs all the time. Mm -hmm. And it takes his word as gospel (laughs) and puts it up on the screen. And that's our story of how the races can work together. Because this racist learns this one guy's all right. Yep. Yeah. And I I didn't even... I I, I got madder and madder (laughs) (laughs) ever since seeing this movie. I can tell. What do you think, Glenn? Uh, you know, when I say things like this is a movie for your parents, I, I, you know, I have been accused of ageism and that's a fair cop. I get that. But for this particular film, I believe that in this country there is a generational divide between those who believe that racism and prejudice are the exact same thing, that there's no difference between them. So they seek out stories of people overcoming prejudice because prejudice is personal prejudice is individual and you can't it can be combated it can be defeated through personal contact so individual reconciliation individual reconciliation so stories about friendships across the races uh, or good people taking a stand like the help those are just keyed into this is this is their view of what racism is small personal and I will say I do think there are still plenty of people of all ages who believe that I right. think that's still a pernicious idea this film, posits that that is the answer to racism or as Farrelly himself said during his speech finding common ground that's what that's (laughs) well here's the other thing the first thing that you see Tony one of the first things you see Tony Lip do in this movie is uh, come home to his his house discover that his wife has allowed two black uh, men who are working on something around the house to have a glass of lemonade and Tony Lip goes over and because these two black men have drunk out of these glasses throws the glasses away That is vicious, vile racism. And the idea that the way to look at this story is Donald Shirley and this person who throws out drinking glasses from black men who work at his house need to find common ground. (sighs) Like, why? That is so bizarre to me. And it is such an offensive idea. I don't understand where that's coming from. I don't think the film ever justifies even like I don't think the film ever explains how Tony Lip even becomes someone from there who likes Donald Shirley or is willing to spend time with him in a car, let alone the fact that he's a vile racist seems to kind of evaporate magically once they are on the road. I think the movie's just bad. It's boring. It's way too long. It does not justify its existence. It is so repetitive. It doesn't. There are several scenes that are basically the same scene Mm -hmm. of Donald Shirley being being turned away or treated poorly somewhere and Tony Lip stepping in and sort of making it okay. There's a really totally unjustified ending 
which <laughs> finds Tony Lip's family being the center of happiness and acceptance for everyone. Uh, oh, my gosh. It bothered me so much. Oh, this movie bothers me. So much, so much. And I will say, Mahershala Ali is very good in it. And I think it is, I think it is, I think it is limping by on the power of that performance and on the fact that, Glenn, you quoted a tweet from Guy Branham Mm -hmm. earlier about Bohemian Rhapsody. I will quote one from him about Green Book in which he said, I think we have had enough movies about how a white person was nice in the 60s. <laughs> and I will I will go with that. Yep. So uh, as you can see, three of our favorite movies of yeah. the year. Uh, yeah. You know, a couple of them, good best picture chances. So we shall see. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Tell us whether you agree <laughs> with us about all three of these movies, very unlikely, or tweet us at PCHH and tell us what you think of these films. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment, What's Making Us Happy This Week. So come right back. The following message comes from our sponsor, Chipotle. April Wilson, hog farmer for a Chipotle pork supplier, reflects on how her family has seen the number of family farms decreasing. My dad talks about getting on the bus and there were 15 kids that got on the bus within four miles and now there's maybe five kids that get on the bus in that same four miles. Like it's just amazing to see the changes. To learn more about how Chipotle is working to reinvigorate farming, go to chipotle.com slash farmers. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Chobani Oat. Made to taste just like milk. It's creamy, frothy, and great with coffee and cookies. But without the dairy, because it's not milk. It's almost milk. New Chobani Oat. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week, Stephen Thompson? What is making you happy this week? This week, one of my favorite bands, The Mountain Goats, announced that they would be releasing a new album in April called In League with Dragons. It is a concept album about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh-huh. The album was announced in a Facebook Live session from Wizards of the Coast. Sure it was. Uh, so there is a collaborative feel between the makers of Dungeons and Dragons and The Mountain Goats, led by John Darneal, who is this absolutely wonderful mind, uh, just a great singer-songwriter, uh, whose music can be wrenching and nerdy and weird and dark and scary and so many different things. But my favorite thing about the announcement of this album, on Monday, NPR Music announced this album and put out a tweet that referred to Dungeons & Dragons. I was not responsible for this. Yeah, I was going to ask. Referred to Dungeons & Dragons as a board game. And NPR Music (laughs) had to issue a tweet with the following correction. And I quote, Correction, we've deleted a tweet that refers to Dungeons & Dragons as a board game. In fact... It is a tabletop role-playing yes, game. Yes, it is. I'm proud to work at NPR Music, <laughs> where, such, where such corrections, when sadly necessary, are issued. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. I agree. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? If you feel the tone of this particular episode has been negative, I'm about to make your damn day better. So, as soon as I tell you what this is, stop the podcast. Pause. Come back to us afterwards and go. The first thing you must do is go to Instagram and start following Inappropriate Patty, P-A-T-T-I. This is a gentleman, his name is uh, Jonathan Hoover uh, from New York City, who goes to his bathroom and sings in the voice, the affect, the very soul 
of Miss Patti LuPone, uh, songs from musicals that she was not in, like, for example, Rent. Okay, he gets it so right. He nails it, especially the way she has and h and front have everything. Uh, uh, it's uh, now a shout out to uh, Julie Klausner. Uh, How was your week? Podcast because she's the one who turned me onto this. Uh, you're gonna, you're coming to me. You're gonna ask me, yes, Glenn, but are there costumes? He's a gay man. Of course there are costumes. Uh, and I just had tears streaming down my eyes. So again, that is inappropriate Patty on Instagram. Thank you very much. This sounds fascinating. And there is a link between what you are talking about and what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. In a few weeks, Documentary Now is going to come back. And there's going to be a link between Documentary Now coming back and what I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you that I want you to enjoy one of the things that always makes me happy, which is Stephen Sondheim's company. Uh-huh. I want you to listen to it. It is a um, it is a 1970, I believe, show that he wrote about a young man who is turning 35 and his married couple friends and the, the women that he is dating and whether or not he's ever going to settle down. And it it is a it, the, the recording of the cast album was the subject of a documentary by D.A. Pennybaker, which is not uh, legally streaming anywhere, but you can find clips of it here and there. And it in it, it is highlighted by a long sequence in which Elaine Stritch attempts to get the recording of uh, Ladies Who Lunch. And the connection to Patti LuPone is that Patti LuPone played that same role and sang uh, Ladies Who Lunch in a performance from a few years ago where Neil Patrick Harris played the main character. Stephen Colbert was in it. John Cryer was in it. Martha Plimpton was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lovely cast. Um, and uh, so you can track down, I believe, the Neil Patrick Harris one is still streaming uh, about. And... Just take my word for it. Get to know company in the next couple of weeks. Get to know it. Making me happy, as always, diving back into company. And just to add to that, uh, on February 1st, the uh, UK production, which is Gender Reverse, that cast album comes out. So it's going to be great. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can find our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. You can find our producer, Emeritus, and music director, Mike Katzif, at Mike Katzif. K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides the music you're bobbing your head to. And we want to give a special thanks this week to our producer, Vinny Acovino. You can find him on Twitter at Acovino. He's been working with us for a while, making all of our lives easier. And he is on to other things at NPR. We're keeping him here, but he is uh, moving on from the show. We appreciate you, Vinny, very, very much. And thanks to both of you guys for being here, as always. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back here next week. If you have a second and you're so inclined, please do subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter, And we will see you all right back here next week. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And next time on Latino USA, we're joined by Gina Rodriguez, the award-winning actress and star of the show, Jane the Virgin. She talks to us about how growing up in a Puerto Rican family in Chicago made her the performer she is today. And she talks about new projects like her upcoming film, Miss Bala. That's next time on Latino USA.